Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct the Podcast. It takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Zodiac is the movie we watched this week. Levi, you don't have a synopsis for this one. Nope, drop so, the ball. So great job. But what <laughs> wh- what did you think of the movie? I was not as enchanted as the first time I watched this movie. It didn't mm. it didn't quite catch me this time around. And I think huh. it was just a little overly long, uh, a little bit convoluted, and mm. you know it was still a good thriller. But for David Fincher, mm, come to expect more now. Well, you would say that about his best film. Whoa, really? <laughs> Absolutely, hundred oh, percent. This is going to be a great cast. A hundred percent. This is my hands down favorite David Fincher movie. Really? Tell me more. Paint me a picture with I your mean, words. Where is Eric's mind space? We have yet to embark upon the curious case of Benjamin Button, <laughs> but I'm not sure. I, I feel like I got a pretty good handle on all the ones going forward, and maybe the social network will dethrone it, because I did love the social network, but this movie is so freaking good. I feel like it's David Fincher like basically saying, I know what the future is. I'm going to give it to you in 2007, so that when you are just streaming every television show that you watch... Uh, back to back and binge watching it, then uh, basically that's what this movie is. This is basically a three part mini series, is how I viewed it. Did you actually like, watch it in three parts? No, I didn't. But I think that if if this was a, and even if they extended it out, but if this were the first three episodes of a mini series on Netflix, I probably would watch it all in one sitting. Now, it does definitely play around with conventional storytelling structure, uh, and I think that because of that, it could be perceived as overly long, but I think if you perceive it as a story, the same way you'd perceive Stranger Things, True Detective, House of Cards, uh, then it's actually a tidy little three hours um, of something that pays off amazingly with a scene of a guy walking into an Ace Hardware staring at a dude for five seconds and walking out. And that's the fucking climax of the movie. That's insanely awesome, in my opinion. I thought that this movie was enchanting, gruesome, uh, terrifying, uh, enthralling, interesting, and and definitely worth my, uh, worth my time and attention. I, I would give this thing... I, I would definitely mark this as my favorite Fincher film so far. You know, I understand i see those arguments i really like the notion of breaking this film up and if i you know as i'm sitting here thinking about it if i had because I don't, i'm not as much of a binge watcher uh at least mm. lately so i'm not mm. used to that format it's it's mm. difficult for me to find three hours to really park my butt on a chair and watch something and so i think if i had split this up and had kind of caught the axe mm-hmm. and taken time away from the film and come back i think that definitely would have helped i think to give it to make it feel a little bit less like a marathon because it does and i think in some ways that's not bad the the whole notion of the the thematic element of the zodiac killer is that he keeps coming back he keeps arising in these (laughs) in this really horrible 
I mean, in the way that we do slasher films, you think you've killed mm-hmm. Jason and then you turn around and he's back again for the 13th time. So, yeah. you know, to have a real world sensation of that, to have a basis in the real world for that is, is a, it's a powerful element. And it's, the movie is based in a really, I think, traumatic time for, for California, especially in terms of, the effect that this had on the the psyche of people. I was watching a David Fincher interview and he talked about having to go home before the streetlights were on because the Zodiac killer was never caught. So you don't know (laughs) if he's still looming around the corner. Yeah. I mean, but David, yeah, David Fincher born August 28th, 1962. And he grew up, was raised in Marin County, California. So he was smack dab right in the middle of all of the Zodiac action. He was the kid sitting on the couch basically, uh, during this film as his dad was watching the Zodiac call into an AM TV show. Uh, just so interesting. Like, this is what I wanted. All I could think about is this is what I wanted second season of True Detective to be. Was oh, this. Oh, please. Oh, I wish. You're, <laughs> this is how you're going to yeah. sell me on this movie, is you're going to drudge up yeah. season two of True Detective, <laughs> which I tried to apologize for up until the end. Me too, man. I was on that train. I was on that train. I was like, I will apologize for this show. And then it was like, you could actually go to forums.ballmove.com right now and see there's a most disappointing movies thread. And I actually put most disappointing. My most disappointing <laughs> movie was season two of True Detective. Um, but like this made me really wish that like HBO had instead of, you know, keeping going on with Nick Pizzolatto writing True Detective, if they would have made it an anthology series where they brought in a new writer and a new director every time. Because can you imagine if David Fincher came in and directed season two of True Detective? Oh, you're singing a siren song right now. (laughs) And it would be a lot like this. I mean, uh, I I love how they, like, this movie just plays with so many conceptions like i love how they throw dirty harry into this because dirty harry always gets his man you know well he's that rough and tumble cop who's gonna come in save the day and so they set that up for you in the movie and then in the movie itself they don't really they don't catch the guy and it's more of a fizzle than uh than some kind of epic shootout at the end of a movie have you seen dirty harry the first one no okay so here's something that you really missed the first Dirty Harry, and I, I wrote a paper on this once in school about, it was about the architecture of cities, but I drug in the notion of Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry catches the Zodiac Killer and shoots him in that. The guy steals mm-hmm. a bus full of kids, literally what the Zodiac Killer had threatened to do to kill yeah. a bus full of kids. And Clint Eastwood shoots the Zodiac Killer. And it's this cathartic moment for San Francisco where they get him. They can't get him in real life, so they made a movie about getting him to try and, I think, help a little bit to deal emotionally with something, such a big scar on the, on the city. And, yeah. and they, they mention it in the movie. Dirty Harry, they weren't joking when they talked about the fact that Toski was who Dirty Harry was based on, down to the, un, or no, Bullet. Bullet was based on Toski because he had mm-hmm. the, uh, the quick draw, the the when you see the gun like under the arm versus on your hip, that was like his thing. It was supposed to be a faster draw. Okay, um, and so those are, that's a literal connection between film and the real life of San Francisco, as I understand it. Somebody could be writing in right now. Nope, Leva, you're an idiot. That's not true. 
Well, that's I how they exactly set it up. Somewhere. Well, that's how they set it up in the movie. They like show, they read, you know, I don't know if it's, it's, it's if it's explicitly the Zodiac killer, but it's a guy who like writes it in a newspaper and talks about his crimes and um it's the the scene that they show from Dirty Harry in this movie is basically them going through the Zodiac killer writing in and talking about himself the exact same way that the oh, Zodiac yes. killer yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. So but it's kind of great how they set that up and they're like, this isn't Dirty Harry. This is like the real story. Also really interesting to me that David Fincher waited five years to make this movie. He took a big, he took a a lot of time off. Uh, I find that really, really interesting. Panic Room 2002, Zodiac 2007. And then he's just been on a tear since 2007. Basically, in the last decade, he's made Zodiac, The Curious Case, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. (laughs) Next week's going to be great. It's going to be good. Uh, <laughs> the Social Network, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and Gone Girl. So he's averaging basically a film every two years over the last ten. Although he hasn't made a movie since 2014. So, And everything else he's working on is like rumored. Or I don't know if he's... Brad Pitt's trying to talk him into World War Z. Well, how awful. I do not I... want to see David Fincher <laughs> direct World War Z 2. But maybe it'll be a good World War Z. I mean, he, yeah... I yeah. Let's not. Do I know. That. Let's not do that. <laughs> but regardless, uh, this might kind of. I feel like Zodiac might kind of represent a kind of the second phase of David Fincher's career. I feel like first phase fits in really nicely. Once again, let's sweep Alien Three under the rug and start <laughs> with uh, Seven, uh, the game, Fight Club, Panic Room. And then I really do kind of feel like Zodiac kind of launches him into that second half. I think he kind of found his voice in those first four films. And we might be entering a second phase in his career. So I'm excited to see how that shakes out as we uh, keep watching these movies. And it was cursory information, but I think he started shooting in digital for this film. Uh-huh. And I am and I notice a distinct aesthetic uh, thread that continues on from here and it it's similar to you know we've talked about at the beginning he does have a particular saturation and light Mm -hmm. level that he enjoys working in and i think that there's a richness that he really hones in zodiac and will and it's it comes through the rest of the films for sure yeah i think that he has been he's been doing that over time but zodiac really i mean zodiac looks like house of cards like they look so similar from an aesthetic standpoint (laughs) Uh, I love what he does with digital shots in this movie. He makes 1969 uh, San Francisco look so like creamy and smooth, and <laughs> it's like uh, these rich blues and these like creamy whites. Like it's it's this really weird uh, kind of view of 1969 because it doesn't really feel like a period piece in a lot of ways. It feels like kind of this modern crime story i feel like part of that is that it clips along so far we start in 1969 we end in 1991 or 92 um so excellent movie from my perspective i i was just kind of just giddy the whole time watching this thing and let's talk about the structure a little bit because the structure of this movie is so weird and if i'm going to talk about this as a three-part miniseries i feel like i at least owe it to you and the audience to break it down into three part the three parts but i think they're fairly obvious the first part is kind of the setting the pilot episode and it's where all the brutal murders take place it introduces us to the zodiac killer and kind of introduces us to the fear of that he's generating in the city it also introduces us to our main characters uh, I think 
you know, probably... Uh, it's interesting because uh, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Robert Graysmith, he is technically the protagonist of the movie, but he just checks out for like 45 minutes <laughs> in the middle of it. When we go to Mark Ruffalo, I really feel like the second act or the second episode is Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards, Inspector David Toshi and Inspector William Armstrong going through and trying to figure it out. And and it culminates when they interview Lee at his place of work. And after that scene, then we cut back to Jake Gyllenhaal and we go through his whole kind of obsessive thing that ends on him landing on Lee as well at the end of the movie. Um, I I just, there's so many great things about this movie. For a, for a movie that's two hours and 40 minutes long, I felt like the pacing was pretty damn good. Well, then you're, wait, so your first edit, you're cutting mm-hmm. right as we get to Mark Ruffalo. No, no, no. Mark Ruffalo, I'm saying the first one we get introduced to the characters, but once, I, I, I guess second episode would take, would, uh, would start when the taxi murder happens. Yes, yeah, which is where Mark Ruffalo comes in, right? I'm looking at my notes here, and I have like a double line, because this is the first okay. time, because they call him out to the taxi murder scene. Okay. And I think you're right in that this is a story that follows, we start with Dylan Hall, we end with him, but the middle is, where Mark Ruffalo tries to take and run with the story. And at the beginning, Gyllenhaal has Robert Downey Jr., mm-hmm. who then just totally falls off the map in the second <laughs> yeah, episode. He... And then we end up, and it's a little bit of that Greek myth structure where Gyllenhaal has this help at the start, but in the end, he is totally on his own when he descends into one of the few basements in California. <laughs> Which actually is a red herring. There's nothing really wrong with it. <laughs> yeah, but they do such a good job of making And that's, I think, yeah. where I struggle. They make such a big deal out of that entire scene. It's so tense. Yeah. But it doesn't pay off. And that, to me, is where I do a double take and I try to flip back through my notes, trying to figure out why are we off on this tangent? Why mm-hmm. does it relate so closely to the crime? And then immediately... We wrap up, we've got Lee, end of story. And that, to me, is where I struggle a little bit. It doesn't tie up succinctly as other Fincher films we've watched, Uh Aliens 3 excluded. Well, Fincher, up to this point, I feel like has been really going for the big ending. And I kind of commend him for going for the soft ending for this movie. I mean, Fight Club, obviously, is a huge ending. Seven has a gigantic ending. The game has a dude falling through a ceiling uh, <laughs> into a giant poofy thing. The uh, panic room has the big ending with the with you know the guy getting his head smashed with the uh, sledgehammer. And then Forrest Whitaker coming back to finish him off. And if he hadn't done that, then he would have made off with the bonds and these kind of epic cinematic climactic endings. And this one has such a soft landing that I could see that it's 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 non Fincheresque in that way. And maybe he's kind of call, doing a call out to himself. You know, in this movie, uh the Zodiac killer commits three murders and then commits the taxi murder. And the taxi murder is kind of different from his MO leading up to that point. So uh maybe this is Fincher's taxi murder in that way. It kind of changes the MO a little bit. Well and especially for being the director of Seven, which mm-hmm. has got to be such a closely related film. Um, and I'm sad that I ran out of time and I didn't get to go watch. Uh, several people in the have mentioned Memories of a Murder. Mm. And I mm-hmm. really, I still, that's very high on my list. I want to find the time to go watch that. Um, 
because I love Korean films. And I think it has the guy from The Host, one of the actors that I really enjoy. Uh-huh. And it supposedly follows this very closely, if not to the letter. And I'm curious how they do they stick the landing. Because I agree, this is one of Fincher's most unique endings thus far. And he, he for a soft landing, it really is, I mean, the acting. Because it's all conveyed just in facial f- reaction as the Zodiac realizes, oh, this guy knows who I am. And then it's left at that. I mean, the, the book and, you know, they show the cover of the book, but at that, that's not what mattered. And Gyllenhaal even says early on that uh, that's all that he needs to to have closure. He needs yeah. to see the face. He tells his wife that there's know. a great moment where he tells his wife... She's like, what do you need to do? Do you need to catch him? Do you need to arrest him? She's like, he's like, I just need to stand there and look at him and know that he's the one who did it. And the way that they set that up adds a lot of power to that scene at the Ace Hardware when the guy's mixing paint. And uh, I do the performance. Uh, I got to look up his name here from John Carroll Lynch, who plays Margie's husband in uh, Fargo. And I was first introduced to him. He played Drew Carey's brother on the Drew Carey show. That was like... Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. I, I watched the hell out of the Drew Carey show when I was a kid. I don't know why I love that show so much, but I watched the hell out of it. He was Drew Carey's cross-dressing brother on that show. Um, but his performances, I just love it. He does these things where he switches. He like throws a switch, which is kind of that those terrifying things that you hear about in like serial killers, how they can just flip a switch and they become this evil monster. The first time we see it, I feel like, is during the questioning sequence when Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards are in there and they're and they're, you know, questioning him. And he's, you know, trying to be congenial, he's trying to be cordial. And he's trying to answer their questions. He's a little bit standoffish. But then there's this moment where his face just changes and his voice deepens. And he says, I'm not the Zodiac Killer. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. And just the way that his whole demeanor changes is so interesting. And then when we see that again in the Ace Hardware, when Jake Gyllenhaal's character walks in and looks at him and he's like, can I help you? And he's like, no. And and then you just kind of see his face drop and you see that kind of evil side come out again. Really, really strong performance from John Carroll Lynch in this movie. Um, I'm, I think it's really interesting because this Arthur Lee Allen guy, uh, he's a real dude and he's never caught for this. He was caught for other crimes, which are heinous and disgusting, but he was never caught as the Zodiac killer and it, I think that there's something interesting about going out there and putting his name out there as because this movie all but pegs him as a Zodiac killer, which I'm sure the book does as well. Um, but there's something he like he could not be the Zodiac killer. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's what this takes us back to. We've watched so we've seen so much emotional justice, and yeah. that's just how movies are geared because that's as a as a movie goer you're looking for that that's the easiest way to engage you is to just forget due process like we got the bad guy and the film lets you know <laughs> this was the bad guy see tarantino and, so, and this movie does it too it really convinces you at the end this guy's the zodiac just in the fact that he responds to Hall's look mm-hmm. with that with that 
the the madness that comes through, you know, in his yeah. facial features, just that warping. Uh, so even the movie still gives us, it's like, oh, it's him. We know it's him. It's totally him. Yeah. And then you want John Hall to just shoot him and be done with it, <laughs> you know? But we no. the the best we can do is crucify him on paper. Yeah, or I mean, put it, you know, and this is a problem we've seen it on. Like Reddit gets in trouble for this. Like oh, they all pick the up time. their pitchforks really, really fast, and you, and that's the problem that Tashi has is that you mm-hmm. can't. You have to have evidence, and that sucks. It does. But suck. That's the way the system works. I really, really liked how strongly Tashi was. Uh, he was so strong about due process. Like there was some line, and I'm I'm forgetting the context uh, in the movie, but there's something he's like so much with due process or something like that. That was Dirty Harry. Oh yeah, that was he Dirty. Was Harry. Talking about it because everybody's exactly making faces at him as they leave the theater. Yeah, and that's his thing is that he is beholden to this thing, and in a lot of ways he's he in a lot of ways he is the cop that you want in your city. He's obsessed about it, man. He's obsessed about this case. He wants to catch this killer more than anybody else. Uh, but he understands that he needs to play by the rules in order to do so, or else it's not going to work. And, you know, there's a lot of stories today, uh, obviously, in the news about dirty cops and cops who are out who have vendettas and what and whatnot, and bad cops, and there are always going to be bad cops. But there are good cops, and Tashi represents kind of that good cop that detective that you uh that you root for because he is ultimately a good person trying to make his way through the sea of thieves and in a lot of ways uh, uh morgan freeman's character in seven was very similar you know due process yeah, they're, is a big deal. Yeah, well and they're very uh, methodical they mm-hmm. need to and it's funny because we get Hall talking about the library so much which was Morgan Freeman's <laughs> kind of point of reference for yeah. the for hunting down the killer in seven. And in this, the reality is that the library isn't even even when uh Morgan Freeman does it, it leads them to the killer, but they can't use that evidence that they got from the library. Right. You know, in the literal sense of stealing who borrowed these books. Yeah. So this- even he was outside of the rule of law. This and Tashi makes it very clear: you need fingerprints or a writing match, and without those things, you need very much a murder weapon or something even more extreme. Yeah, but this movie really made me feel like writing matching is a is a <laughs> ruse. Yeah, it's a total. Well, and it's like a, a lie detector test, or yeah, everybody's like, "Oh, the lie detector," t-. but those aren't. Those are really hard, I think, to actually passing to get used in court. Yeah. I, I will say, I, I feel like this movie is a great companion piece to Seven in that way, because I feel like the, the correlation between Morgan Freeman's character and Mark Ruffalo's characters are really strong in both contexts. Obviously, this movie is set in a real-world setting and is based on a true story, whereas that movie is not. Um, but I do I want to go back to something you were talking about with like the Reddit thing, and, and anybody who wants to look it up can look at reddit's response to the boston bombers uh during the boston marathon there was the the bombings obviously and some reddit sleuths like jumped on and basically pegged it on this kid who had nothing to do with it and had actually committed suicide and there was like this really awful 
uh, fallout from this thing of like this so this kind of hive mind social justice type of deal. And this is so interesting because it you know this whole thing happened years after even Zodiac came out. But I feel like this movie does paint around this kind of obsession with these kind of horrific events as as a community and as a society we kind of fetishize these things and it's like uh these horrific things are things that we rally around and it's i feel like there's a little bit of a commentary on this in that uh we use these as kind of social touch points i mean for you and me 9-11 is always going to be something that we always remember throughout time it's you know the biggest terrorist attack ever in the history of the united states and uh and it's kind of a bummer like that has to be some kind of social thing that we all have to rally around but it becomes such a huge part of our lives these kind of horrific tent poles define us almost as generations of people well and there's a a danger in this obsession because not only do we rally around them but they're they've been twisted because now it's entertainment now we have exactly. cereal and you know and regardless of how those things like Anansiad and the making of a murderer, mm-hmm. you know, those are revisited by justice, the justice system. But the danger right. is that people get invested and people think they know whether or not an, or not Anansiad is guilty based on yeah. what they are hearing in a radio show that right. as much as I love NPR – they're like everybody else. They need ratings. Well, and they so. have a perspective. And it, you, you, nobody is 100% unbiased. And you can try to adhere to that. But, I mean, with the Anand Syed thing, I, I feel like, you know, I listened to whole, that whole first season of Serial. And I was never convinced at any point that he was innocent. But I thought that there was enough evidence to take a look at whether or not he was innocent. Yeah, and what you invest emotionally in that is yeah. the dangerous part because now you're like, mm, let's read because people just reach these extremes. And that's a little bit right. what Paul Avery makes a point out of, you know, as he's descending into his drunken madness is that, yeah. you know, we're trying to make a buck. We are a newspaper. So, unf- you know, as much as you want to do the right thing, you are just the cartoonist. You. You're actually trying to solve a crime. Right. We're just reporting it because that's how we pay the bills. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, like, I mean, I obviously I watched, I binged Making a Murderer as well. And this week, two days ago, uh, Brandon Dassey had his conviction overturned uh, in, a, I believe, a federal court. Uh, and he was the nephew of Stephen Avery, who was the guy who was, um, who was kind of the centerpiece of that Making a Murderer story. And if anything of that, you know, documentary, like, I think the thing that just about everybody who watched it agreed upon was that Brendan Dassey was steamrolled in in the due process as, like, a 16-year-old who wasn't very bright, went in there, thought he was just cooperating with police, and ended up confessing to some kind of heinous crime that just about anybody who watches the actual confession can understand that he had no idea what was going on. He was just trying to please people and tell people what they wanted to hear. Um, so that's really interesting. Uh, I, I came out of making a murderer, um, once again, thinking Stephen Avery may have been, uh, wrongly convicted, but I wasn't fully convinced about Stephen Avery either. Um, and that's the thing. That's the thing about this due process stuff is that 
you there are corrupt police officers out there there are bad cops but there are a lot of good cops who are trying to adhere to due process because due process of the law is our only backbone (laughs) of kind of societal our backbone against anarchy in this country and it's not a perfect system but it's interesting to see it when it's done really well and you never get to see detectives do it well in movies or tv shows you see dirty harry you don't get to see tashi because it's much more interesting and fun and you know rollicking to watch dirty harry shoot his 45 magnum at bad guys than it is to watch like two detectives not solve a crime (laughs) you know (laughs) well and to watch the all of the emotional damage that is caused by these things that are so stressful and so you know, over these things run so long and, and they're invested too emotionally in yeah. solving these crimes. And so, I mean, the point at the end of the movie is uh, the guy, uh, Gil- Gyllenhaal's character, you know, they say he has a good relationship with his kids, but they don't say, Hey, he's still with I his know. wife. Hey, everything turned out great. It's like, no, he held it together fairly. Yeah. He so it's not really a happy show. ending. In that oh, sense, this movie is not a happy ending at all, um, at all. But I, I really, you know, I, I thought it was also interesting what Robert Downey Jr. had to say when uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character goes and visits him in his houseboat, which was in Sacramento. I didn't really understand that because if he went to work for the Sacramento Bee, why would he be living in a houseboat? I'm pretty sure there are any houseboats in Sacramento. Regardless. <laughs> um, he goes and visits him in this houseboat and he's like, you know, more people are killed on the commute to San Francisco on a monthly basis than the Zodiac Killer, you know, killed in his entire career. And it is these interesting things how, like, we as a society, you know, we're obsessed with serial killers, like the Silence of the Lambs and, uh, and you know, Zodiac and so forth. Like, in movies like seven like we get enthralled in these things and there's a lot more grim stuff that happens day to day but it's just a lot more boring and this kind of morbid curiosity with murdering human beings is is kind of a it's kind of a gross reflection of what we are as a society in in some ways yeah we're not great yeah all the time or even most of the time (laughs) that's one thing i appreciate about this movie is it kind of makes you question that from a societal standpoint like it 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 makes you kind of take a look at what we're what we're doing as a society i mean horrifically there was somebody who basically carried out what the zodiac killer said he was going to do with the sandy hook shootings like we went through that as a nation um and it still you know echoes through us uh today it's it's still brought up as uh you know one of the most horrific mass murders in the history of the nation and uh and I think things like this, things like these morbid, uh, disgusting acts are going to be these, these tentpole benchmarks of us as a society. And it's, it's really disheartening in some ways. Um, and I, this movie has kind of made me reflect and think about that. So that's something I appreciate about the film. And that's uh, Fincher's, that's, I think this would be difficult for a lot of other directors. I think he comes from a really good place to capture the emotions necessary without mm-hmm. going over the top and he doesn't have to i mean you're right that that with the ending being as subtle as it is i think the temptation to do something grander would be very difficult for a lot of people but david right. just 
every time I see interviews with him, he's so mellow mm-hmm. that I I understand his person. I can see how his personality unfolds in these ways that he the challenge of doing something much simpler is far more intriguing to him. And yeah, you know, I'm thinking to the end of uh curious case of Benjamin Button. So curious. Uh, <laughs> Even social network, social network, social is very soft you know, landing. they're, they all, yeah, they all kind of, he, he really trained. And maybe that's another part of this second half is that he really pulls back and he tries to find the much more nuanced ending. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I think we need to look out for that going forward. Um, I, I think that's a really interesting take. Uh, and th- speaking of interesting takes, Davey Mack always has interesting takes. He's on the forums, forums.bobloop.com, uh, where anybody can go and chime in on the conversation for any of our movies. But Davey Mack on there, um, he said, I finished rewatching last night, and one fairly obvious thing that I noticed is just how restrained Fincher is in this film compared to both Panic Room and Fight Club in terms of style doesn't have a lot of showy camera work and trickery of those last two films yes it captures your attention immediately with that opening shot looking at the neighborhood from the car uh fincher is definitely a master of establishing mood and character and i agree with that in the same in the context that we've already spoken about in that uh you know fight club the game seven panic room they all kind of are these boiler kettles that are just heating up and building up steam and then they just have this release valve of a climax at the end which is a big showy climax and this movie doesn't have that but at the same time this is like this is i think some of the most gruesome uh fincher stuff that he's put on film especially the murder the stabbing murder of the couple and i know the guy uh ended up surviving but that stabbing murder is really hard to watch and it's a horrific horrific scene um, you know, in other movies, we talk about the sh- the don't show what he doesn't show. You know, up to this point, Fincher kind of keeps things into your imagination, especially with Seven. Um, but actually showing the woman getting stabbed in the stomach and screaming to death, that is a horrific, horrific scene. And something that I had forgotten about and really threw me when I saw it watching on this on this rewatch. I think Greedleby makes a good point, too, about the Hitchcock nature. You're talking about like the stabbing scenes. The fact that there's always there was with the exception of the the shooting the cab driver, they all have this tension that really builds up. Like mm-hmm. when he comes across the couple as they're sitting on the picnic blanket, you see him, and then you don't, and you know as the viewer, ah, oh, these guys are so screwed. Yeah, but the couple is just playing it so mellow that. You know, the the difference, it just exaggerates your tension to theirs. Yeah. Because you're just, they're so screwed. And they're getting tied up. And that stuff always just... I, I'm just going to get shot one day. Because somebody's going to tell me to tie myself up. I'm just going to run, I think. Yeah, I, I feel just, like... I, it, it just never ends well, right? It always ends up with you getting murdered in a more horrific way. Fight, make noise, fight, scream... You know, and that's—I'm sure it's big. It's big talk coming from a guy sitting in front of a microphone. But uh, well, we had talked about last week when the guy broke into my apartment. The only thing that I could muster was a hello. 
Yeah, you're usually looking like a dipshit up until the last second, and then you're like, oh, this, yeah. uh, dead. Life's about being a dipshit. That's kind of, <laughs> that's most can of it. Can you be less of a dipshit? That's yeah. the real challenge. If you can, if you can, like, if you can describe to, like, 5% not being a dipshit, you're you're ahead in life, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. What man, else? I mean, this is, this what? thing was chock full of Fincherisms. Right down oh. to the heavy rain. Heavy rain. Although it was sunshiny heavy rain, which mm-hmm. is new. Yep. Um, we get a we get a don't show moment, and we get a refrigerator refrigerator moment in one when they're searching Lee's trailer, and Tashi looks into the freezer and <laughs> closes it and says, "Uh, <laughs> squirrels." Yeah, that's so weird. Like this guy straight up eats squirrels. Yeah, and they're also all over his apart or his trailer. I don't get yeah. how squirrels don't catch on faster. Hey, man, squirrels ain't that smart. Yeah, I guess. I just feel like most animals are like, oh, that animal's dead. This is not a good place to be. If humans are like 95% dipshit, squirrels are like 99.9% <laughs> dipshit, I think. But they're think. also the most adorable. It's the dipshit valley, I like to call it. Uh, squirrels are not adorable. What? That's for another podcast. That's for Levi. I think your propensity for squirrels marks you as a potential serial killer. <laughs> Just oh, I haven't taken up eating them yet. <laughs> um, one of the things I really liked about this movie that I feel like has been underdone in his previous films is the use of popular music in the soundtrack. Yeah. I really liked how he kept on bringing in psychedelic rock from that era. Uh, you know that psychedelic rock music that that came out of Haight Ashbury in the late '60s and early '70s, and they use it in such a menacing way. Like they play it over the first murder, and they like kind of bring in like that churning organ music, and uh, and they they the lyrics say "Roly Poly Man." It's like this. It gets real creepy, and it's just a really masterful use of popular music which i feel like in his other films he mostly leans on cinematic soundtracks and scores whereas in this film he draws upon uh the popular music of the era which i thought was cool yeah it was a stellar soundtrack and it does a really good job it's this is the creepy version of Mad Men, where it just <laughs> it nails the time period the feeling and some of that is uh i remember from uh, not alien. What was right after aliens? Uh, the the, seven? Se- the he's yeah seven. You remember talking about the the uh, the audio the audio of the surroundings the that sort mm. of ambient noise uh-huh. is really constantly there with the exception of the library scenes which and that was intentional I think to really bring the focus into that space and how yep. heady it was. Yeah. Uh, but I think Fincher has just this real knack for getting background noise in, making it noticeable, but not, you know, overpowering the dialogue with its volume. Right. It's just there's always street noises. They always sound – the horns of the cars sound like they're from 1969. You know, they're <laughs> not modern horns by any stretch. Um, the sounds of the, the San Francisco Chronicle – in the background, the I always love that newsroom sound. Well, and, yeah, and, and the it's... typewriters just churning, 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 churning. And that leads into, he does some really cool stuff in this movie where, that I don't think was probably scripted, where he uses like small moments to tell a story as opposed to, um, as opposed to just doing kind of straight. 
Like, there's the scene where they just do a quick cut of the graphics guy at the paper taking photographs of the cipher so that they can print it in the newspaper. And they just take, like, 30 seconds to go through him photographing the cipher. And that tells you all you need to know. They don't have to do the cinematic thing of the spinning newspaper coming at you with the cipher on <laughs> the front or even throwing the paper down on the on a kitchen table in the morning with the cipher <laughs> on the front or something like that. Instead, they do something really cool that you've never seen before, that old process of photographing the, um, the actual written cipher so that they can then put it on the front page. And then the second time they do it, that really stood out to me correlates to that typewriter noise in that it's, I don't know when it is like the third time that the Zodiac killer writes to the San Francisco Chronicle. And you just see the secretary going through the mail and then looking at finding the piece of mail that, uh, that the Zodiac killer has done opening it with a, uh, with a letter opener. And then we cut to the newsroom typewriter noise going, and then we just hear a blood-curdling scream, and everybody stops. And you could tell that everybody stopped because you can hear it, because the typewriter stopped happening. And that's such a great way to say, hey, the Zodiac Killer has written another letter, instead of having somebody walk into an editorial board meeting holding an envelope. That is a much more cinematic, much more interesting, and much more affecting way to say that that happened. And that these are these small moments that I'm going to be looking out for as Fincherisms in the future. When has he done something really interesting with a scene that could have been done, you know, with, with a single shot? Like well, he, where, where does he kind of embellish that a little bit? Cause I think they're really cool scenes. And a variation on that. If you think about the, the cuts between showing the photography occurring, this was one of the, I think strongest, films where he has multiple cuts between multiple characters laying out plot development mm-hmm. you know he's cutting to the the cops discussing something and then cutting to Jake Gyllenhaal making a break in the case and then cutting to somebody on the periphery and those conversations are linear in the sense of the story being driven forward and it's very you know it's similar to uh, Edgar Wright had that ability where he would just do fast cuts to get from scene to scene instead of just an edit and an edit to a new yeah. point in the story. And I really, I really, and it's the first story where he's had uh, strong multiple lead characters. Mm-hmm. So it's the first time I think he's been had the chance to use it so effectively. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that might be one of the reasons why it can seem to fall flat a little bit is that they are really pushing Jake Gyllenhaal's character as the lead character, but we don't really learn that much about him in the first act. And then he's completely gone for the second act and then comes back. And maybe it was because, maybe it was just because Hall was kind of a big star when this movie came out. And that's why his face is front and center on the poster. But I really do feel like this is an ensemble movie. I mean, also he wrote the book, so he wrote the book that, uh, that the movie's based on. So that makes sense as well. I do want to read this book. I think this might be some good summer reading. I also um, really enjoyed the the light with which this movie paints the Zodiac because he kind of comes across as a dipshit. You yeah. know, they, they really make a point that his cryptograms were nothing more than, you know, replacing letters. And yeah. he stood the Zodiac symbol and name was stolen off of a watch. And so and, you know, he had a pattern 
and he tried to break it, but you know, the fact that he has one immediately puts him into kind of crazy territory. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that they didn't whitewash history that they point out Paul Avery calls him a latent homosexual, which, you know, in 2016 is seeing that as like, that's not cool. What? Why would you print that? But, you know, in 1969, that's a, a unfortunately, just a different cultural era. And yeah. so, you know, they misuse that stuff. They abuse those those things. Well, and that whole thing was probably really associated with that hate culture, that hate, hate Ashbury culture, which was also during their phone in segment where they cut to a radio host taking phone calls and a woman calls in. She's like, I'm not really afraid of the Zodiac killer. I'm afraid of what all those hippies down on hate street. So, uh, that kind of counterculturism that was happening in San Francisco at that time that now San Francisco is so known for as an accepting diverse place. That whole thing was being seeded right during this period. I mean, Woodstock was 1969. This is like the height of hippieism. Um, so that whole thing is really interesting. Uh, as a time as a timepiece, yeah. Um, the other thing I like about this movie, though, is that it was actually funny. Like there are a lot of funny moments in this movie, and I feel like those are there to kind of balance out the gruesomeness of the murders and the kind of the bleakness of not being able to catch people. But there was funny stuff in here. Yeah the the cop the buddy cop moments that we got. Have yeah. you ever tried Japanese food? You mean uh-huh. like teriyaki? No, <laughs> like. Yeah, sushi, basically, is what he's describing. You got any animal crackers? The animal crackers. I love the aqua velva scene. Yeah. (laughs) The aqua velva is so funny because it's the thing of you go to a bar and you, like, don't know what to order. Like, like you can tell Jake Gyllenhaal's character is not, like, a bar fly. He's not not a guy who goes in and has, like, his, you know, uh, seven-word drink that he orders when he sits down at the bar. But he knows what an aqua velva is, probably because his mom used to drink them or something during the summer yeah, time. He had this once, and it's the yeah. only name he can remember. So exactly. that's what he goes for. But I just love it when he goes. It's such. It's masterful. It's comedic storytelling. Is when he goes. If you try it, you're gonna want one. And then he, you know, uh, Robert Turner Jr. kind of picks up the glass, kind of looks at it out of the slide of his eye, and then takes a sip. And then we cut to there's like six aqua velva glasses. <laughs> All empty as they're you know talking about the Zodiac Killer. I love that stuff. Yeah, Robert Downey Jr. just being himself. Yep, he just uh, he's funny every time. The looming stuff. Uh, I love it when <laughs> you're doing that thing starting with an L. Yeah, looming. Uh, I love the scene. There's a scene where they're interacting with the handwriting expert, and he says, uh, "If you say if you uh, speak one more word, I'm going to have to ask you to leave." And he goes, "I'm sorry." And he goes, "Sorry counts as speaking." Yeah. <laughs> I love that. So yeah, there are these like kind of funny, funny little moments that are interspersed throughout this movie that keep. I feel like that's all pacing. It's well, all you, pacing. You have to. I think that's the mm-hmm. one thing that I've learned the last couple of years of watching movies is just no matter how serious your film is, you've got to have just those you've got to have a joke or two because people have to breathe exactly i love it too where uh i love it when the director allows you or has a character say exactly what the audience is thinking um and you know i'm not talking about a an antithesis of a show don't tell moment but i'm talking about when a character expresses something that 
that the audience is exactly expressing at that moment. You're just you're just on board with the characters when that happens. The one that I've already talked about is in Seven when uh, Morgan Freeman's character gets the package and he looks at it and he goes, "Should I open it? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to open it." And it you're like that thought process is exactly what the audience is going through right there during that scene. Should he open it? I don't know. Oh, he should open it. I want to see what's yeah, he, inside. He needs to do it. I want to see it. Yeah, it's the same thing. And there's a really cute moment in this movie that is definitely not anywhere near that moment at seven. But uh, but there's a moment when Jake Gyllenhaal's character is in the uh, smaller police department when he gets let in the back room and he is able to go through all the files. And he like leaves and he's like, thank you. And he leaves. And the chief kind of turns to the guy and he's like... Or the, one of the cops starts to him and he's like, what is that guy doing? And it's, he's like, oh, he's trying to solve the Zodiac. And the guy goes, well, good for him. <laughs> and I feel like as an audience, everybody's like, yeah, good for him. Like, he's trying to do his best to go catch this serial killer, even though he's just a Eagle Scout cartoonist. Well, uh, they didn't, at the start, we got a little bit of a montage uh-huh. for Hall's character maybe that's one of the things that makes him feel like such a prominent protagonist yeah uh amidst the field of protagonists but we get him getting his kid together mm-hmm. being late for school that's uh, a total fincherism as well cartooning show- yeah introducing us to characters by showing them th- showing us their morning routines he does that over and over and over again in his movies and then we just he goes straight into the cryptography stuff, and uh-huh. so they pound that home. So by the end, you you understand that he has a problem. Like he's a puzzle solver, but he's also obsessive about it. He has a difficult time breaking that, and so you yeah. feel a little bit bad, and you you want him to solve it just so that he can sleep at night. Yep, and have yeah. a better relationship with his kids. Yeah, and there's also good commentary here. We kind of talked about it about you know us as a society kind of rallying around these horrific events. But I feel like there's also a, um, there's also a kind of critique of the media that happens in this movie. And it happens with, of course the Chronicle, but then there's that great scene where Robert Downey Jr.'s character goes on TV and says that, you know, he saw the handwriting and it was the same in the Riverside killer as it was with the Zodiac killer. And uh, Anthony Edwards character has a great line where he says, it's very real. You know how I know? I just saw it on TV. And basically how this stuff gets broadcasted out and it becomes a part of the zeitgeist. And all of a sudden, it doesn't really matter what the facts are. All matters is what everybody believes. Yeah, you, um, you, there's some of that stuff. And that happened with the Reddit thing, with the Boston yep. Bombers. Like People yep. so thoroughly took it as truth yep. you know, without personal verification. And they just swung into action. And we're, as a creature, we're very dangerous when we do that. Yeah, and I don't want to be insensitive. I, I'm going by recollection that he committed suicide, but he might have just died. The guy, the kid had died. Basically, there was this kid who like disappeared, and so everybody thought he was a Boston bomber, but he ended up he he had died. So there's I'm doing I'm working off a of memory here, but if you want to kind of see where this could go, <laughs> and this kind of uh, internet vigilanteism detective work, and where it could actually lead, uh, the Boston bomber example is something that's really interesting to look at. Um, what else? Oh, the cast, dude. The cast in this movie is crazy. Not only do you have Iron Man, but you have the Hulk as well. Um, 
<laughs> I I just love the idea. Like, there's a scene where they're both at Riverside and they're outside of the police department, and they're they have this kind of altercation because. Mark Ruffalo's really pissed off at Robert Downey Jr. And I'm like, this exact scene plays out in the Avengers. <laughs> it's but, a good... Uh, well, and then they get Brian Cox from the X-Men movies, who played uh, Melvin Belli. Uh-huh. So he he's had some... Tang- he's tangled with Wolverine. Oh, yeah. Brian Cox. And he's got... Oh, yeah. I hope we're going with the superhero angle here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he's also... My favorite, my favorite Brian Cox is uh, in Super Troopers. So good. At, he basically makes that movie possible by being like the oh, sheriff. Yeah. For a second, I heard Starship Troopers, and I was oh, really Super trying Troopers. to to dig up what he was in Super or in Starship Troopers. You got Anthony Edwards, who is one of my favorite actors from television ever, because I loved ER when I was a kid, and he played Doctor Green on ER. And of course, he's also Goose from Top Gun. But he'll forever be Doctor Green to me. Um, and then, uh, like we said, John Carroll Lynch, who's in the, you know, the Coen Brothers movies, um, Chloe Sevigny popping in. She was so good in, in Big Love. This cast is so good. And then we get um, at the very end of the movie, I, I'm trying to find out what his billing is, but the guy who plays kind of the grown-up Mike McGough, yeah, his name's Jimmy Simpson. He has a big role in House of Cards. He plays like the hacker in House of Cards. So I thought that He's was cool. Also, the super creepy guy, or one of the super creepy brothers in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Well, there you go. It's very hard to take him serious in anything after seeing him in that show. Well, I thought it was so weird, though. The casting was so weird. I mean, as a human being, Jimmy Simpson was born in 1975. And in this movie, he was shot as a teenager in 1969. I was like, he does not look old enough to be Mark McGough. But apparently he is. So, uh, But the casting, dude. The casting is so good in this movie. And I feel like at this point, uh, David Fincher is really just getting all the actors that he wants and doing whatever he wants with them. And he's doing a great job. It's, oh, a, yeah. it's a pleasure. If you, if you see behold. his name come across your desk, you got to. Yeah. You got to seriously consider that script. Yep. Unless it's yep. World War Z2. <laughs> uh, I also like how they kind of pay homage to kind of the heritage of film, which I enjoy. And they did that, of course, in Fight Club with the little uh, the little spot up in the corner. Uh, I, I forgot what he calls those. The cigarette burns. Cigarette burns. There you go in fight club and they kind of pay homage to those and like after you saw fight club you couldn't help but see the cigarette burns even though now they don't exist because everybody has digital protectors <laughs> but another thing is like in this movie they go through the film reel and you see the little zodiac symbol which you don't really realize is there but it's there in the countdown yeah uh as you go down you know five eight seven six five four three two one the zodiac symbol is in between all of those it's so i there. love those little yeah i love those little homages to film i thought that was cool well in referencing have you ever seen the movie for the dangerous game i remember reading it as a Mm-mm. kid or yeah was it the most dangerous game was the name of it anyways mm-hmm. i yep. i remember the story from from school as a kid the short story i always thought it was super super crazy yeah uh but I didn't know there's a film. I need to go dig that one up. I think it'd be a fun watch. Uh huh. Yeah. See what inspired it. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Those old movies don't always hold up. But uh, but who knows? 
One of the things that's also great about this is that David Fincher is a script hound. Like, he could find the greatest scripts. I am so impressed with the screenwriting in each of the films that he's done since Alien 3. Um, he tracks this shit down, dude. Uh, and this is done by James Vanderbilt, who direct or who wrote The Amazing Spider-Man, which was a Spider-Man reboot. Uh, but he also wrote uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2, so you can hang your hat on that. I don't know how to... <laughs> I, I am so, like... He also I, wrote White House Down. Why would you skip that one? He also wrote Independence Day Resurgence. Yep, this guy's crushing it. How the hell? <laughs> How the hell? Because I felt like this, this screenplay was so freaking good. Um, But who knows? I, I am not a screenwriter. I don't know the politics of screenwriting. Maybe you get a good script, and then you just punch up for the rest of your life. Uh, <laughs> I, I have no idea. He's but, working on Independence Day three, so he is. But hold the scripts, on to your butts. <laughs> the scripts for all of these movies are freaking good, man. Uh, and and I'm just so impressed over and over. And I think the next one is, oh god, now I'm forgetting his name. Um, but the guy who did the West Wing, uh, Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin. He direct. He wrote the Social Network. Oh no shit. Yeah. So, uh, good scripts are another good thing. If you want to make good movies. That. Than, than direct good scripts. Yeah. yeah Anything else I'm, you got here? You know, I'm just excited for Zodiac 2, where we <laughs> figure out it's actually Ted Cruz. Uh-huh. And not, uh, <laughs> not Arthur Lee Allen. Yep, Zodiac so. Cruz. <laughs> um. <laughs> there we go. Just yeah, end it. This is going off the rails. Kill the cast. Uh, the the one thing though, I feel like this movie is so much better too on the first watching, because you have there's a lot more mystery around it. You don't know whether they're going to catch him or whether they're not going to catch him. And well, you don't really know people... who the Zodiac killer is. And even at the beginning, I remember watching this at the beginning and thinking, "Wait, is Jake Gyllenhaal the Zodiac killer? Because he's the one who's like he's not going to write, he's not going to put his name on the second letter, and like all this stuff." Um, and that all that mystery kind of goes away. So it's all about the character development, the dialogue, and kind of those bigger, broader social messages, I think, that we touched on earlier in the podcast uh, on the second viewing. But that first viewing of this movie is pretty visceral and pretty exciting. Yeah, and it's it's a story that's not... You, I don't know how many people really followed up with the Zodiac when the book was released. You know, I didn't yeah. know the... De- I knew that he was never caught. That was really the extent of my knowledge. I knew he killed a bunch of people. Dirty Harry shot him. But he actually got away in real life. Yeah. Uh, so this movie is... And it's... I like those stories. I like when you can get at least some details out of a movie and then you go, you know, it inspires you to go look up the actual details of what happened. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's a good movie. And I like think they could have gotten real clunky with those title cards and they were a little bit clunky, but the movie I feel like has really good pacing and it's really exciting and it fits in perfectly with our 2016 world of binge watching and, tight stories and anthologies and all all that good stuff um i feel like this is the all the best parts of a 10-part miniseries wrapped up in a two-hour and 40-minute film uh and for me it was a joy to watch i loved it man yeah so, it would be great to see well no we're gonna get that with house of cards i was about to say it'd be great to see fincher do some tv but yeah we're gonna get that at the very end so yeah, I i'm think excited we'll do, a, we'll do a little bonus of the first two episodes of house of cards you're That'd welcome cool. world um <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, folks. Well, please go to the forums, forums.ballmove.com. We will have a forum post there. As this podcast is released for next week's movie, which is The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I'll just say it normally this time. Impressive that you were able to get that out. It takes a lot of restraint. Uh, so uh, we'll be back next week with That Curious Case. Uh, until then, please go to forums.bellmove.com or send us an email direct to podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week. I'm Eric. I'm not Paul Avery. Doubtful. Cut. Mm-hmm. <laughs>